Hello and welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, a large research collaborative network that is composed of many academic sites across the globe focused on precision oncology and advancing the clinical care of patients with cancer. I really appreciate the support you had provided and uh, downloading these episodes week in and week out. Today's episode, we are going to talk about liquid biopsy. I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Emil Liu from the University of Minnesota, talking about what in the world is liquid biopsy and how does it apply in GI cancers. I think it's really important uh, because there's a lot of things going on and a lot of talks about liquid biopsy. And uh, I want to know from Emil a little bit about his vision. What what do we mean when we talk about this? What are the challenges specifically in GI tumors? And where do liquid biopsies apply in gastrointestinal malignancies? So I hope you enjoy this episode. Again, our goal on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast is to have an intersection between clinical medicine and precision oncology. And without further ado, Dr. Emil Liu on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Emil, welcome to the show. And uh, for folks who don't follow your Twitter handle, which is at Cancer Assassin, I would say that's a pretty uh, pretty provocative uh, Twitter handle. Maybe introduce yourself, tell us where you are, what you do, and um, A, what made you interested in GI oncology, and B, how did you come up with that Twitter handle, at Cancer Assassin? Absolutely, absolutely. It's such a pleasure to be back, uh, Chatty. I think you're doing a great job with this podcast, so I look forward to having an entertaining and informative conversation with you as always, and uh, hello to all the listeners. So uh, I'm Dr. Emil Liu. I'm a medical oncologist uh, at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities, uh, way up in the land of ice and snow. And uh, I've been here 10 years. Uh, I'm from New York, where I trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And so I'm a physician scientist. And so I would uh, trained initially in lung type of cancers and mesothelioma, and I had additional training in neuro-oncology. In the last 10 years, my primary focus in the clinic and in clinical care and translational research has been GI oncology. So I treat patients with uh, anything from the range of colon, rectal, anal cancer, pancreas, and moving on up to esophagus and uh, any of the hepatobiliary tumors. So there's a very diverse, heterogeneous set of cancers there uh, from a clinical standpoint, scientific and molecular standpoint. And uh, from cancer assassin, I think there's somewhat of a, it's a good segue uh, because uh, Chatty and I are very avid users of Twitter and, and on social media. And so I thought very carefully uh, almost seven, eight years ago when I went in, I said, you know, our job in cancer is to like good assassins or SWAT teams go in, take out the target, but spare, spare the normal population, spare, spare the civilian, so to speak. And in, in cancer with molecular targeted therapy, we're trying to do the same thing. So if I uh, can, uh, using the metaphor of being an assassin to get out and spare spare the normal uh, things that we want to spare and just hit the target and get out. And then I will accomplish my mission as a cancer assassin. So, <laughs> so that's where that came from. You're also pretty active in the lab, like as a physician scientist. And But what, what does your lab focuses, uh, focus on? Mm-hmm. So we, we've been looking uh, kind of way at the other end of the spectrum from clinic and stuff that's uh, kind of like the early days of Saturday Night Live. I like to say not yet ready for prime time, but we're on the way really exploring very basic cancer cell biology and the interplay 
of how cell biology, which is, I think, all too often overlooked in aeromolecular oncology, how it, how it, uh, how molecular changes that drive cancers and our passenger mutations, how they affect the cellular biology, and how the tumor microenvironment overall really affects and evolves in response to the chemotherapies and the target therapies that we give it. So, you know, I always think of uh, the principle for every action as a reaction. So the action is cancer. And every time we diagnose cancer, it always has a head start, right? Even if we caught it in the earlier stages, it's ahead of the treatment portion. Then we recognize and diagnose it and counteract with either surgery or radiation or molecular or, or cytotoxic chemotherapies. That's our reaction. And for some subscribed amount of time, we are successful, hopefully, in, in treating the cancer. Then the cancer evolves and figures it out. So we're trying to, at the cellular and molecular, very basic levels, using microscopes and, and other molecular techniques, trying to figure out what are those features. And something I'm very excited about, uh, something we've been looking at uh, for over a decade, is these ideas that cellular bridges can form between tumor cells, and they actually transmit information. And just like social media and Twitter, as we're saying, and other forms like Facebook and Twitter, and others uh, form networks of communication, the tumor cells are forming networks of communication. And that's what we're trying to figure out. We figure if these are really important communication networks, how do you stop them from communicating? And is that a novel therapeutic strategy? So definitely when I go back and forth between lab and clinic, is a very, <laughs> very wide span of, of things I, I hope over the course of my career can meet more in the middle and get to the point where we can figure out how to drug those targets and bring them into the clinic uh, someday and hopefully with much funding. You're doing amazing work. So really, really great. So we're going to talk about liquid biopsy, first of all. So, so I don't know, for, how do you define liquid biopsy when you say liquid biopsy? Um, and I don't know, why do they call it even liquid biopsy? You can't biopsy the blood. Yeah, it's a sexy term that can be used in three words or less yeah. that people are more likely to get than the, the other terms that might be more scientifically accurate. Um, so it, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's an apt term in some ways and maybe a misleading term in others, but so I agree with you. So I think the liquid part definitely to differentiate it from traditional way where you know we always say t- you know, traditionally how many decades we've been saying tissue is the issue, right? If you want to just from the diagnostic standpoint, you always need tissue. And it, that, that doesn't change. That has not yet changed yet. Although people are working very hard on tests that could assay and with great sensitivity and specificity, say if we suspect a cancer for something seen on a scan, get a liquid draw and spare someone a biopsy, that's a, a, a something to aspire to. We're definitely not yet there, not ready for prime time. But the liquid standpoint, uh, it's marching towards and, and in some ways is there and in some ways on its way to providing evidence that it can be corollary or supplementary to tissue-based biopsies for, for diagnostics, and also for monitoring success of all the therapies. And that's really, you know, Chadia, that's at the heart of what's been going on the last few years. I will call it controversial. I will, I will, make, it con- I will make it controversial if it's not, because I think many um, researchers are doing innovative work in the clinical and scientific space. And perhaps it's a field right now where the claims may be outpacing the proof and the evidence, but with good prospective randomized clinical control trials, people are trying to prove that if you can take blood as the most common kind of liquid uh, biopsy, that it can prove that the treatment works or should be given. And you're right. It's saying liquid doesn't say blood biopsy because urine is also a source of liquid and it's easily expelled. It's it's a waste product, but uh, there have been studies looking at whether it be DNA or cells or exosomes, extracellular vesicles in urine. So we don't want to exclude in, uh, urine and, and or other types of fluid like uh, cerebrospinal fluid. 
Now, that could be a form of liquid biopsy, but blood is obviously the thing that's most prevalent and easy to get and, uh, and also most tested so far. Okay. So in GI cancers, well, before we talk about GI cancers in general, but um, is the expectation that we need to have concordance between the output from a tissue biopsy versus a blood biopsy at 100%? Like, is, I mean... Is there no room? Uh, because it's still, I mean, blood is blood. It's not tissue. Mm. Yeah. So you as a scientist or as a physician, are you expecting 100% or is there an expectation that, yeah, it's not going to be 100%, but we as close as possible. And I'm willing to compromise few percentage points of concordance because I can't get a biopsy. It's faster and all of these things. Yeah, definitely from the clinic, from a clinical standpoint, um, you know, we always strive for perfection and everything, but we're not likely to achieve it. And I think for, for what it is, if we want to get to a point where we prove that examination of a liquid biopsy, let's say through blood, it is proven that uh, serial uh, examination, let's say a few times per year or every time a cancer progresses, that would help guide and tailor treatment. Then, yeah, from a clinical standpoint, uh, I'm willing to take something less than perfect concordance. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, as a scientist, I'm, I'm more skeptical in, in this. I'm skeptical and optimistic at the same time. The, my skepticism comes from the blood doesn't, or any of the liquid biopsies, don't tell you about the tumor architecture. And the tumor microenvironment that I was speaking about earlier that I think is critical, how, how tumors are constructed, uh, tumor stroma proportion, as for an example, that my own group, we published in JAMA Oncology in 2019, can be a predictive marker of platinum chemotherapy resistance in ovarian cancer. Blood or any other form of liquid biopsy will never tell you that information. So there are different pieces of the puzzle. Um, but from a more optimistic standpoint, there's so much heterogeneity. And so this idea of sample bias. So, uh, so I don't do the biopsies myself for, for GI, but if my friendly neighborhood endoscopist goes in and for, for either colon, lower endoscopy or upper endoscopy gets a pancreatic tumor, I recognize they're probably sampling what, less than 5%, well less than 5% of what the actual tumor is but each of these tumors is heterogeneous. So I have to depend and assume that it's a snapshot in time of a very small portion. Then my friendly pathologist will report, say, here's what I see, yes or no, it's adenocarcinoma of this sort, and then the molecular features are done. But at the end, my skepticism comes, well, it's only a portion of what is heterogeneous at that time. And then I treat it and it's inevitable that the tumor will be different six months down the road in 12 months. The liquid biopsy has a potential to tell us because of the shedding of DNA or cells or whatever the form of the biopsy is, liquid biopsy is, that uh, something that the, the solid tumor actual biopsy won't be able to tell us. So I, I feel like they're more complementary or have the potential to be complementary rather than all in, let's all you know, stop doing tumors, tumor examination. So for GI cancers, and this is your area of expertise, um, a couple of questions there. There are so many GI cancers from pancreas to lower mm -hmm. GI, upper GI. Is there a specific, and there are some shedders, non-shedders, I guess, when you look at GI cancers, uh, which of the GI cancers you feel the liquid biopsy is important uh, or ready for prime time, I guess, mm -hmm. um, you know, are these uh, considered non-shedders, shedders tumors, and, and uh, maybe can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, it's very intriguing. I'd say you know, maybe uh, because of, uh, like, you're right, GI is so diverse, probably colorectal cancer is ahead of the pack, and maybe the others will follow. So we'll focus on that. 
for the purposes of this discussion. I think it's also an example where the technology thus far has outpaced um, the proof and evidence that making uh, ability to test something uh, actually makes a difference clinically. And I know a number of my colleagues, perhaps some listening to this podcast will severely disagree with me. And I, I invite that, that, uh, that counterpoint. But right now, there are prospective randomized controlled trials to say, for example, in stage two colon cancers, that um, right now, the best uh, assumption uh, is that some patients with higher risk forms of stage two may merit uh, benefit, may get benefit from adjuvant postoperative chemotherapy, and others will not. And we don't have great markers for that. So this is a great niche if we can prove that if you check a liquid biopsy and there's no cell-free DNA or no circulating tumor cells, that no, you shouldn't be treating with chemotherapy. And then at the other end is, wow, the cell DNA load is really high or, or that yes, of course, someone would benefit, meaning they would live longer if you give them chemotherapy. That would be great. We don't have that answer. And it would not be just to say, yes, we have that answer, but we have a technology and with with trials ongoing, maybe that answer will be different six or 12 months from now. I hope it will be because it's relatively non-invasive, right? You don't have to go do full body scans. You get a blood test. That'd be great if we have that answer. But in terms of the shedding, you know, I, a lot of things get shed from tumors and the cells from inside and outside of tumors. It's the DNA, but what does the DNA mean? You know, I, I think from a biology standpoint, you know, we can definitely measure it. We can definitely use the DNA to do genomics and say, well, is a KRAS status changing over time, BRAF and colorectal cancers and other driving mutations and other cancers? That's a great thing to know because sometimes that changes over time in response to therapy. But um, will someone live longer by checking it every three months and making treatment decisions on it? I know uh, there are people who do that. And I, so far, which I disagree with, I think we need more proof that, that that's the right thing to make decisions on in that way. And, you know, you, you mentioned a lot uh, about the DNA when it comes to liquid biopsy. And, and as you know, at least at Keras, one of the things that we are trying to accomplish, and, and you pro- I don't know if you've used the product or not yet, but mm-hmm. we're trying to do the RNA plus the DNA when it comes to liquid. Mm-hmm. A, how important is the RNA in GI tumors, I guess? And uh, uh, if you've had experience in using the Keras products so far, anything that you can comment on? Absolutely. I could say uh, just in the last 10 days and even today in my clinic, we have three more patients, samples are on the way. So I've been grateful to Keras for partnership for, uh, for the kits and the instructions and making it really easy logistically to do this. Um, and you know, in GI cancers, it's interesting because serial tumor biopsy is not de rigueur, is not standard. Uh, a decade ago, a decade plus ago, when I was with the thoracic group as a fellow at Morrison Kettering, it was on the horizon and tissue biopsies uh, were, would be integrated as part of clinical trials, not off trial. And then with the advent of liquid biopsies, lung, non-small cell lung cancer is the, the field that really pioneered their approach of looking at evolution over time. In GI, I would say, uh, something where a niche where this is really a, a potent and valuable tool, for example, is pancreatic cancer, where endoscopic ultrasound is a, is a technically difficult procedure, at least from my point of view, since I would never attempt one and not trained to do it, but my GI colleagues do that. And they get enough tissue, fine needle aspiration, often maybe a core biopsy to make the diagnosis, uh, but the, often the, the response after tumor testing is insufficient tissue to, to, to do the whole panel or even any of the panel. And that's frustrating from a patient standpoint, as well as from a provider standpoint. 
So I, I definitely use that opportunity to try liquid biopsy. And so being able to get that information back is valuable. And, and, and with the rising technology now, we can get some of these uh, immuno-oncologic biomarkers that we couldn't get even just a year or two ago on liquid and now with the possibility and the RNA and other features that allow us with greater sensitivity and specificity to get that answer. As a clinician, it gives me a powerful tool to say, I don't have to put a patient through a repeat solid tumor biopsy when I can get the blood and have confidence in those results. And the fact that the RNA, the transcriptome, uh, I think is, is really a huge deal maker because you know, we know that the, the DNA is there, but not always expressed, but the RNA that gets translated to protein, which is the markers that drive these actual cells is really what we want to know uh, and can really give us insight as to what, how is the cell or the tumors, the groups of cells, the tumors behaving by having that information. Today, in 20, towards the end of 2021, where are you using liquid biopsy in GI cancers? I think you mentioned colorectal earlier, so I'm going to mm -hmm. assume that maybe in the other GI tumors is maybe not ready for routine clinical care. I don't know. But I guess outside of clinical trials, because I know there are so many clinical trials ongoing to define when to use uh, uh, liquid biopsies and so on. But in routine clinical care, where are the GI oncologists utilizing liquid biopsies and how? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, and I think the answer will be different six and 12 months and three years from now, for sure. Hopefully it will transform. I, I, will, I will add to that, that last year ASCO uh, called advances in genomics in GI cancer, very specifically advance of the year. And I tout that in a lot of presentations. I said, they didn't say genomics period. They didn't say genomics in all cancers. Yeah, they can. said GI cancers. And so it's like epic win. We've been waiting years in GI cancer <laughs> for this advancement. You were recognized. So we're finally recognized, big time recognition. All right, we're finally there. We're playing with the, the big boys like melanoma and non cell lung cancer with genomics, finally. And not just identifying genomics, but doing something about it with targeted therapy and drugs to actually do something with those targets. So uh, GI cancer, as, as, as prevalent as colorectal cancer is, one of the top three cancers with uh, you know, 150,000 plus cancers in the US each year, but gallbladder carcinoma, uh, even neuroendocrine tumors, appendiceal cancers, which I semi-specialize in because I get a lot of referrals along with my surgeon. So it's 1% it's, it's or fewer of all GI and colorectal cancers, but I see a lot of them. And these rare cancers, I think, are, are a great opportunity to do um, you know, blood-based biopsy uh, to, to examine the, the information that we can't see sometimes in the solid tumor. An example is, uh, especially some forms of, especially lower uh, intestinal cancers are, are mucinous. So it gets a little harder to do the, an accurate genomic and transcriptional profile. So maybe the liquid really is the key. And I've been trying some of those and gotten some good results. Um, so not just for the rare tumors uh, and also the pancreatic, as I mentioned, but anything where there's insufficient tissue, uh, it, it's really, it's really, allowed our, our, our clinical sophistication to evolve. And we can get genomics even when the tissue isn't there and not put patient through another biopsy. And colorectal cancer at any stage, I think um, I really am pleased with see how things are evolving. The technology is better, better concordance, but more, more faith that, hey, if I get this result, it's something reliable and not only accurate, but something where I really can have an option to, to make treatment decisions based on. Is uh, in colorectal cancer, are liquid biopsies being utilized more in, let's say, stage three 
colon cancer where you're doing surgery followed by adjuvant chemotherapy and you're monitoring because usually, I mean, at least when I was in training, Emil, we just do serum CEA and you mm-hmm. know, part of the, the stuff. Are you using liquid biopsies serially in addition to CEA in the stage three disease after definitive therapy, or is it more being used in stage four disease after completion of, well, uh, you know, sometimes you treat it till progression or maybe until plateau and you just basically mm-hmm. stop and say, I'm going to do liquid biopsy. Like, we, I'm just trying to get more granular into where you're using liquid biopsy today. Yeah, and I think that's evolving and I, and I hope we'll have more evidence in, in, in the coming years. I think a great example would be some of these long-term survivors, and I'll use my example of a smaller subset, but uh, the stage four, early stage four, stage four A, colorectal cancers, and sometimes they have um, limited number of metastasis and they have surgery with intent to cure and they, they live longer, much longer than the average person with colorectal cancer and years go by and they might have a recurrence. And I know that their, their genomics from 2017 and 2018 is old, is old news. And I want to know that that was taken at, that was done in a chemo naive state. They had surgery or maybe that chemotherapy and then surgery and some chemotherapy after and years later or months later, they might have recurrence. I want to know what is the updated status. And I love the, the idea that I can do a non-invasive biopsy, the blood-based biopsy with Keras to get cell-free DNA and all kinds of genomics information. So definitely plentiful there. In terms of how, how often to do it, should I do it on an absolute routine, frequent basis? It's still up in the air. And I hope we'll, we'll get, um, including the trials with, you know, doing that uh, I'm honored to participate in through Keras with the different disease sites, that that's going to yield a lot of information for a lot of different GI and also other solid tumor cancers as to say um, the cell-free DNA, a high load, what does that mean? Does that, does that correlate with uh, earlier time to progression and progression, lower progression-free survival indicating potential benefit from starting chemo earlier? And maybe there's a discordance between the cell-free DNA being a herald to a scan that won't show progression radiographically until six months down the road, but maybe catching it earlier allows one to initiate treatment earlier and lead to survival benefit. Uh, I think I, I find that to be a hope. The flip side of the coin, I think you know, for stage three, for example, I, you know, it's a great unknown. And I'd like you know, some, some data, some hard data and prospective evaluation to say, yes, checking it every three to six months and replacing CEA. I, I really hope it will replace CEA and be something that 100% of colorectal cancer patients, stage three or, or stage four, would benefit from. Right now, CEA and C199, for pancreas cancer, is CEA for colorectal are relatively unreliable. They're non-specific inflammatory markers, only useful in about half or a little bit more than half of patients. And for the other half of patients, it's useless. We have raging disease all over the place and the completely normal values. Um, this liquid biopsy has the opportunity to, to really potentially benefit much closer to 100% of patients and also with proof that uh, the, the values matter for survival. So, so it's, it's fair to say that it's probably... Today, it's more applicable for stage four disease, but you, you are hoping that maybe for stage three disease, there are some prospective studies that, uh, are these studies ongoing? The for Yeah, stage- yeah, through the, uh, some of the cooperative groups like Alliance, what is called COBRA, and there are others, and especially in stage two, the, the scenario I mentioned earlier, man, if we had something more definitive to say uh, to any, any clinician that orders a test, based on these results, of course, I should give adjuvant chemotherapy for what is now identified as a high-risk stage two, or no, I should not. I want to spare this patient of three or six months of chemo because it would be useless. It would not reduce the risk at all. It would make no difference. 
and this test helps me make that decision, that would be gold. That would be really gold. Because there's no question when we treat with adjuvant chemotherapy, there are, we are over-treating, right? I mean, there's Absolutely. no you, you never need to treat everyone because some mm-hmm. patients are good with surgery alone. But the hope is that by over-treating a subset, we are adding cure to other subsets. So I agree with you. I think being able to avoid chemotherapy would be amazing. Uh, Emil, any uh, when you think in the future, maybe the, your la- your final thoughts into as you think of the future with liquid biopsy, wh- where do you see us going in the, in five years from now? Yeah, the the sophistication of the genomics and transcriptive transcriptomic platform at Caris uh, has really elevated the game. So, so thank you for that and for our partnership in that. Um, you know, in, in my own lab, I, looked, I mentioned tumor stroma proportion earlier, and that's from the tumor time taken time of diagnosis. We've done uh, some research into circulating tumor cells, and man, that uh, was an aspiring, aspirable marker. Well, I don't know what the great word is, but uh, when you can only capture 20% of patients, uh, the CTCs accurately, that's out. So this is the next generation of stage of evolution. So uh, if, if the, the sensitivities and specificities expand, I think in the next five years, Teddy, what I really want to see is those prospective randomized uh, trials that really demonstrate checking this. Uh, and, and clinical decision-making based on this test for any of these cancers, GI and outside of GI, that make our patients live longer and also spare patients who would not benefit from chemo, if that helps us point us in the other direction and spare those patients, then the, the number needed to treat that we learned in medical school and residency to shrink that so you really don't have to treat people who would not benefit from it and really focus on the patients who would benefit. Uh, I'd love to say, as we sit here again, uh, hopefully less than five years from now, that that'll be the case. Well, Monsieur Dr. Emilou, uh, merci beaucoup. Uh, that's you know the extent of my French. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Très uh, bien fait. What do we say? Like enchanté. Uh, enchanté. <laughs> avec plaisir. No. With great, great pleasure. Avec plaisir. Avec plaisir. <laughs> no, thank you so much, Emil. This is really great. I mean, I I uh, follow lots of these uh, solid tumor fields, and and there's really it's just fascinating to me how how things are happening. I mean, honestly, when I started training, if you would tell me I'm looking at minimal residual disease in colorectal cancer, I would like, what? What are you talking about? Like colorectal cancer, it's a solid tumor. What do you mean by minimal? Exactly, cancer? exactly. Just amazing the progress that has happened. So kudos to you, to your colleagues for all of the work that you guys are doing. We're going the way of the MRD. We're on the way. And we are going to- Not there yet, but we're getting the, there. We're going to go on the record that hoping that we are going to be live in ASCO GI in San Francisco. Absolutely. I look forward to dialogue, interlogue, interplay, debates, <laughs> and, and, and great food and fun and, and a lot of learning going on and advances for patients, for sure. Thank you so much, Emil. Dr. Emil Liu on Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. Thank you so much, Daddy. Thanks, everyone. I really appreciate you listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast and to my interview with Dr. Emil Liu talking liquid biopsy and GI cancers. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you can uh, rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast and refer a friend or a colleague to the podcast. Please let me know how I'm doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan, or you can send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And until next time.